0: This week I'm going to be doing my top 15 films of the year and my bottom seven I think films of the year. Based on the fact that I've seen them during this calendar year that they were released in Australia during this calendar year. Which includes some of the films that were up for Oscars back in last February that didn't actually come out here. Uh, and I actually reviewed on the show also the fact that I missed a lot of normal shows there's quite a few films in there for once that I haven't reviewed on air so the odd mini review along the way and there's obviously some of the art house stuff Roma seems to be steamrolling everything but that hasn't even come out in cinema yet so just what I've really seen over the course of the year and it's been a pretty poor year for films I think normally I'd fill out my top 15 with films that have been absolutely wonderful and I'll leave a few off. And um, this year, not so much. Yeah, I don't know what the story is there, but I'm going to do the format of this. Will be um, I'm going to do two movies a piece up until the top five, and then uh, in the middle of that, probably at that juncture, I'll go through my worst films of the year. And uh, number 15 is a comedy that came out um, earlier in the year. A directorial debut for Kay Cannon uh, called Blockers, a teen comedy, um, but one with a little bit more intelligence and a little bit more uh, modern social awareness and, than we would have got, say, 20 years ago in this type of comedy. Uh, had Leslie Mann, Ike Barronotz, and John Cena, all very good in the three leads as parents who've known each other since childhood but were trying to stop their... Their daughters having sex for the first time at their prom night, uh, and the whole prom night setup isn't that original, but the rest of it was actually fairly well done. It was, uh, it was funny. John Cena's very, very good. Uh, he certainly seems to have um, Dwayne Johnson's ability to transfer from being in the ring to um, actually being a credible comedic actor and he did a very good job and I even though the girls themselves are pretty boring I thought overall it was an enjoyable comedy and it it certainly benefited from having that sort of um, modern take on morality and social awareness and it wasn't it wasn't sticking the mud at all and so that wouldn't normally made it but it's there And number 14 a film I never reviewed in real time and it's one of the biggest of the year and one of the biggest Oscar hoovers definitely just because of what it is what it's about who's in it a star is born now just because of the acting and the music and the fact that Hollywood can't resist films about itself I thought La La Land was dire and that walked away with a slew of awards that I didn't think it really deserved. This is so much better than that, so I would imagine there's going to be a lot of awards thrown its way. Um, I wouldn't say that I was in the camp that thought it was a masterpiece. I thought the first 40 minutes or so, I thought it was absolutely superb and compelling and really well directed, and I fell in love with the characters of Bradley Cooper as this drunken maniac rock star and he discovers Lady Gaga singing in a tranny bar in um, some dive that he accidentally walks into trying to get his uh, booze going because he's a rancid alcoholic. And they fall in love and realise that she's just amazingly talented. And, and um, all of the way through to that pivotal moment in that scene that will probably go down as the most important in the film where he brings her out on stage. I believe they filmed a lot of it at uh, Coachella maybe, and that's done really really well and it's all convincing and but I had to say the second half kind of I, I lost traction with it um the first half has got absolutely standout awardsworthy worthy uh, sub-characters in Andrew Dice Clay as Lady Gaga's dad he's phenomenally good and even better Sam Elliott as the brother of Bradley Cooper's character both awardsworthy worthy performances and so are the lead two as well but when they sort of they sort of faded away and were replaced by um a british rock music uh rock sort of uh guru record label head control freak so on and i i thought the film was weakened once he got involved because i was never convinced that this character had the power he had or that he could make some of the things happen that he like there's a very pivotal thing at the end um which is in all of the other Star is Born movies, so it's not really a spoiler, but uh, I won't give it away in case you haven't seen it. But I just wasn't convinced this guy, with the conversation he had with Bradley Cooper, could compel Bradley Cooper to take such drastic action. Um, so I did lose away a little bit. It's almost like the music involved. Some of it's great, and some of it is a little bit more mawkish. Um, so I'd say I'd give that a 7.5 out of 10. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but it's my 14th favourite film of the year, and current uh number 13 in my top 15 hour uh, movies of the year is game night um compared to blockers it's a step up as a comedy uh john francis daly and jonathan goldstein starring uh, uh, directors starring uh, jason bateman and rachel McAdams as a winning couple who are pathetically competitive when it comes to the likes of board game nights and um so they have these insanely competitive board game nights and um it, they try and not invo- invite Jesse Plemons, who's the uh, cop neighbour, who is. In, he was in Breaking Bad as this very scary hillbilly guy, and he's very scary in this as well. I don't think he's going to be. I think he might end up being typecast as a potential serial killer in any film he's in. Um, I thought it was very funny. I thought the cast was winning. It was clever, and uh, the brother as well, Kyle Chandler. I like him. He's turned up. He's a. I think he's a guy. The uh, famous. Seen at the opening of uh, the Dark, uh, the Dark Knight Rises. No, that's the combination of two of the film, uh, the last Batman film, where he says, uh, "You're a big guy," and um, we end up for you. And that famous uh, meme that came from it. He's he's coming in a few films now, and he's got um, some awards on TV. But anyway, overall, I thought it was a, a pretty winning comedy. It it fell into that sort of. Let's make everything messy in the last third and involve lots of gunplay and violence and stuff. It was much better when it was being clever in the uh, opening two thirds of the film. But I still liked it. It's my 13th favourite. Number 12, another of the big um, potential awards. I'm looking at the list now, and it's it's interesting that so many albums and artists and and movies of the year seem to be falling away from the contention that I was pretty sure that they were going to be in, and spite these momentous black clansman when it came out seems certain just because of the racial tensions in america at the moment here's a semi-true story biopic of a a black one of the first black american detectives to work i think in colorado who ended up uh talking to the clan on the phone and ended up signing up to be a Klansman and um spoke to david duke uh, the head of the clan and Basically, they loved his impersonation of a, a white person that hates black people. The only problem with it, it the direction was great. The main performances were were good. Um, but after that initial premise of, of a, a black man joining the Klan, there wasn't much story to it. I thought he, spitely related it very well to the modern era and um, racial tensions going on today and the, the um, clips at the end of the Charlottesville debacle in America last year all of that really worked it just wasn't enough story to hang it on it was just like he's he's joining the clan and he's black and they kind of had to shoot horn in a a bomb plot that didn't really happen and it didn't really happen in the film much either so black clansman was a good film definitely worth watching but not great and my number 12 of the year and two of the biggest budget films of the year a number 11 mission impossible fallout uh which is um got enormous plaudits when it was released as one of the great action films of all time and the best in the franchise so far. I still got a soft spot for uh, Ghost Protocol, which was kind of like Fast and the Furious 5. It was where the um, the franchise itself actually sort of went up a gear from being a parochial concern to this behemoth. But it was certainly a brilliantly put together screenplay, very tight Perhaps not too much that was original, but maybe not too much that wasn't covered in the other films. And not too many new characters either, because pretty much everyone... This is a problem the Fast and the Furious franchise has got as well. They've introduced so many characters now, it's almost like we aren't getting new ones. Uh, And the same with the next film I'm going to do. So it was really good. Some of the action sequences, particularly towards the back end of the film, were spectacular and uh, a lot of the plot was really clever as well particularly the opening sequence which was uh, better than any Bond opening sequence for a while very cleverly done and I actually warmed to Tom Cruise I kind of said that he was a weak link in a lot of these because he just does the same thing over and over including running really fast Um, but this time around I kind of thought that they focused on him as a a person as well and I like the fact that they they made a big deal out of the fact that he could never give up on even one person and how that was a strength rather than the floor and sean harris i like as the villain he's a great actor remember him in a pivotal scene in harry brown a michael kane film which is stunning one of the most creepy grimy sequences of the century in movies so far he was really good as well and henry cavill he has been so useless and one-dimensional as superman he was a much better character in this film and he really sort of uh, gave it a bit of ballast as well so a really good the equal of anything in the franchise and a a really good film at number 11 and at number 10 uh even bigger film avengers infinity war Uh, marvel has wiped the floor with dc uh, as far as uh, comic book movie adaptations goes and and seeing the trailer for aquaman it looks like that's going to continue as it looks terrible um the marvel films have gone through a period of being often dire uh, particularly with a lot of the sequels but then they've just bounced back so well with uh, thor ragnarok and black panther and um they just through i think they threw about three in about three months out including avengers infinity war that were really good and as good as uh, well black panther wasn't that great actually um but it wasn't bad Um, But the other two were fantastic and right up with the best of their movies. Um, It was an amazing story, but too much to fit into one film. We're waiting on four now, and um, that's coming out, I think, in the new year. Um, But this one, it had everybody that's been in every single Marvel film so far, which was a little bit too much people. Um, I appreciated the darkness of it and some pretty bleak things happen iconoclastic things happen in it uh, and a lot of the uh, special effects wizardry the cast was very very good and um, but very very big as well and I do wonder whether that's kind of the next film's called Endgame and it's kind of fitting because how many subplots and sub movies can you weld into the same movie without it falling apart at the seams if there are any flaws in it I thought the um because it was so overstuffed with plot and characters they didn't need to have very long winded battle sequences occupying a lot of the last third of the movie i would have much preferred it to focus much more on character because that was the strongest parts and josh brolin as Thanos was the best villain in the i think in all of the marvel movie franchises so far so it's a really good effort and my 10th favorite film of the year up to number nine my ninth favorite film of the year uh, one of the most difficult films of the year was uh, you were never really here which is by um legendary director uh, lynn ramsey is that the one i was thinking of i don't know if it was actually i think so she's got quite a lot of acclaim over the years and based on a novel by jonathan ames uh it stars an incredibly intense central performance from joaquin phoenix one of the great actors of his generation starring as a a screwed up as you can get individual whose uh, calling in life is to hunt down trafficked children or children that have been kidnapped for sex or by pedophile gangs for sex or sold by traffickers except he doesn't just rescue them he brutally murders the people that have kidnapped them which is an interesting (laughs) premise because it doesn't leave um it's not like it's not like his character then becomes unsympathetic to the viewer either. Um, it's a very brutal, bleak film which exists in its um, atmosphere, a very dreamlike state, um, which is excellent throughout. The only thing that stopped it being a, a a masterpiece for me, and I was interested that they got a got a few awards for the screenplay. Um, I thought this screenplay was probably the letdown. I thought the story was probably the letdown as well. It was too derivative. And it didn't really go very far. A lot of it is Taxi Driver, I thought. It, it, it kind of errs a little bit too close to the, to the entire plot of Taxi Driver in many ways. Uh, obviously, he ends up trying to rescue this one particular young girl who's been kidnapped and so on. Um, it's quite cerebral. We spend a lot of time in Whacking's head. And, and there's lots of things alluded to, such as his own childhood sexual abuse and he's been a, a war veteran and he's obviously an extremely screwed up individual and we spend virtually the whole movie inside his head which is not a pleasant place to be but it is a very very good film like i said i found the story didn't really go anywhere which was a little bit of a shame but still a great watch if you want to put yourself through pain uh at number eight one of the big oscar hoovers from last year three billboards outside ebbing missouri as Um, a lot of the oscar contenders from last year sound like last year's movies but didn't come out until january in australia and i didn't see them till then or review them on the show until then so they fall within this year um for me again it wasn't the unqualified masterpiece that it should have been i thought the first two-thirds of the film were absolutely superb and i thought the last third made so many narrative choices it was silly almost like he'd written brilliant who was the director it was um the irish guy i think martin mcdonough and he's he's done some good films but um it's almost like he hadn't finished that final third of the film and made some really garish choices which i thought weakened the plot but the cast was very good again i didn't think francis mcdormand really deserved the oscar i thought she gave a very good but kind of rote performance kind of the, the kind of performance i could see her doing any time and um, the one that really stood out for me was Sam Rockwell who got an Oscar as well as she did and he was brilliant in it I thought he he embodied surprise and uh, there were lots of sort of um, reactions from him that broadened his character from being this racist redneck cop into something a lot more enjoyable and a lot more engaging than, than it could have been and he was great and so was Woody Harrelson I kind of felt when Woody Harrelson left the film the some of the heart left the film as well i certainly think the the last third was the weaker of the three um but it's still it had enough wit it had enough uh, the script was dynamite uh lots of really funny stuff in it as well and interesting people interesting characters and scenarios again maybe once they got the um the setup of francis mcdormand setting up these billboards to um to chide and shame the people that hadn't looked into her daughter's death, in this case the Sheriff Woody Allen. Once he got past that, I don't know that it had that much further to go. Um, And like I said, the the big things that happened towards the end were a little bit unbelievable. But it was still a very, very good film. And the fact that I'm complaining about films as high as eight, that was my eighth favourite film of the year, should tell you how weak I thought the actual year was for movies there are a lot of uh, films that i didn't see along the way i never saw hereditary uh with tony collette that's got some great reviews. shoplifters by um it's a thai director a thai film that won maybe maybe it won the palm d'Or. at can but that's got brilliant reviews so there are films i didn't see but that's part of the course i normally don't see everything but i normally still would see 10 flat out brilliant films and i don't think i did this year so anyway you were never really here at nine and at number eight three billboards outside at ebbing missouri Uh, and if i had complaints on some level about all the films so far the rest i don't so at number seven in my films of the year an early contender for um big hype for a low budget film was a quiet place seems like we're in an era of um horror movies that cross over from not as tiny budgets but um like hereditary i guess but sort of catch on with the public and a quiet place certainly did it was a monster movie film really um but it's uh, cachet was the fact that the monsters of the future um <coughs> well not the future it was set in a sort of dystopian version of the modern modern day whereas uh, society had been wiped out by these incredibly violent scary monsters and they were pretty scary actually um but they only exist on sound so everyone has to live in a world of complete silence which made for a very very good plot point and a very good companion to trying to get a horror movie because of course um you know people creeping around in silence is uh, part for the course of a horror movie it's a great idea <coughs> even though it didn't stand up to much scrutiny And the fact that it was uh, written and directed by John Krasinski, uh, he's certainly got uh, more strings to his bow than playing a comedic actor in The Office. He was one of the main characters in that. And him together with his real-life wife, no jealousy here, Emily Blunt, made a great family. And um, it it was a really interesting film as well. And I thought the the production design of the, the villainous monsters and everything was really well done um like i said it didn't it if you you could prod holes in the whole notion of the way that they set they set up their lives and so on but you kind of give it that uh they're doing a sequel i'm not quite sure why it was pretty pretty well rounded out um but a good film and uh i like the way that one of the daughters was deaf in real life and they sort of um all had to learn sign language because that was the only safe way to communicate and you could drop a cup on the floor and, and that's the end of your life, basically. I did find a bit of trouble with the whole Emily Blunt getting pregnant plot. Like, you're going to do that in that environment. And also the fact that she managed to go, <laughs> almost like a Scientology birth where you're not allowed to make any noise. But as far as plot points go, they were they were effective in conveying um, horror and also in utilising that whole notion that you have to be silent, visually very good as well. So I liked In A Quiet Place. And number six, uh, Coco, one of the best, all-time best Pixar films. The, uh, the whole of Pixar, since Disney acquired it, seems to have split into two. Uh, the sequels, which are often lacklustre, and just they're going to keep making Toy Stories until we die, um which isn't i've never really been a big fan of toy story very good in a lot of ways but they're surface films i'm i like the other half of pixar up Wally, inside out three masterpieces and coco nearly deserves to get there it was a bit more knockabout fun than art house and um a bit more straightforward but where it really soared was its use of Mexican culture, Mexican families, and the Day of the Dead, which was a much more profound thing than I ever thought of. Um, interestingly, Spectre, the Bond, terrible Bond film was on last night, and the only truly standout scene was the Day of the Dead. And I think that's all we see about the Day of the Dead, It's those sort of carnival processions where people have got skull masks. But the, the whole concept that your family, when they die, um, they live in this alternate world and they're not actually dead they're just carrying on life and every year they can cross over to the normal world and you've got to have a picture of them and light candles and they can spend time with their family in the temporal world and once the last person in the real world forgets about them that's when they disappear and move on to the absolute realm of death where they're never seen from again very profound film in that level and also a real tearjerker It made me cry on a couple of occasions and not just the old lady singing at the end there was a couple of moments throughout um really clever plot twists that should have been telegraphed from miles but i never saw coming and when they happen really really good stuff really well done by pixar that was my sixth favorite film of the year and after this i'm going to get into my first chunk of my worst films of the year and this is how oh, um, my worst films of the year can be broken in two. So uh, the first chunk of those, is the criteria for my worst films of the year isn't just being a bad film. And a lot of the worst films I never bother watching anyway. It has to be a certain reason. So if it's a film that has got a great deal of acclaim, and I feel it's been it's let me down, or something more less than what I was expecting. Or just um, annoys me on some level of lack of imagination or ambition. Like Kong last year may have been competently made in some ways, but just a huge lack of ambition on every level really, really annoyed me. So number seven, it pains me to say Sicario 2. Sicario is one of my favourite films of the last five years. Absolutely wonderful film. Didn't keep uh, Villeneuve as a director, um, but that didn't seem to matter this was such a weird film. It's um, the first one was about the Mexican drug cartels and the involvement of the CIA and the DEA in covert operations. Um, Emily Blunt being uh, sort of like local law enforcement caught up with benici del Toro and uh, Josh Brolin. Across the board, fantastic cast, brilliant uh, direction, cinematography. It should have been an award-winning soundtrack as well. That was fantastic. Um, this time around it seemed to have virtually all the elements but we lost cast members like Emily Blunt and people like her and her co-star who I forget they balance the movie out so this time around we only get Benicio del Toro and Josh Brolin who are interchangeably on one side of the whole scenario so we don't even get the other side Um, it made some really weird choices with regards to the plot such as um, I've never seen a film where uh, a young lady whose parents are incredibly wealthy is kidnapped and you never even see the family once you don't see the cartels other than the odd shootout but you never really see anyone from the cartels the plot itself was really really weak and it didn't go anywhere it didn't have any purpose or reason for being and they also made some really bad choices as well with um, regards to very important things being set up, and then just sort of being forgotten about. So, for instance, like, they made this huge deal about the American government deciding to kill this girl. And then Josh Brolin just puts her in the Witness Protection Program. And you think, well, the governments are people that run the Witness Protection Program. How, how, what, have they just forgotten that they were going to kill this young kid? Um Cinematography, performances, no problems at all, but um just no reason for being. And number six, the Meg... I like trash films. This one was sort of like a a Mega Jaws reboot starring Jason Statham. Um, Just didn't work on any level. It took far too long to get to an enjoyable last quarter where lots of people got eaten. Along the way, it wasn't suspenseful enough to be as quiet as it was. You didn't see enough of what was going on. And once the shark goes crazy, it's a little too late. It was just a bland, bland film at number five I was talking about Pixar descending into ropeable sequel territory well I saw Incredibles 2 recently and it's awful it is so bad Um, I don't know what they were thinking but the first film had a really enjoyable subtext about superheroes and blah 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 normal family life really good film not one of my favorite Pixar films but certainly a very good one sort of like up up there with Ratatouille and the likes as a standalone film this time around it's like they just didn't even bother with a plot how many superhero films have you seen where superheroes are banned because of big nasty things happening and you know they've caused too much destruction doing what they're doing but then the baddies come back so they need the superheroes back the end Uh, it was very unambitious on a plot line Didn't really warm to any of the characters. Uh, Some of the voice acting was good in it, but um, and it it looked just as good as Pixar films do. That's not really a plus because you're expecting that when they're spending 150 million dollars on a cartoon. Just the weakest plot, the most unimaginative Pixar film I think I've seen in a very long time. And at number four, uh, I've got a massive hatred of Steven Spielberg films. Um, I said a long time ago that he's he's the most talented director to have ruined the most films for me purely because he he can't give the viewer any credit for having any intelligence he makes everything morally black and white too noble the strings hands in as strings start soaring i hated Pro, uh, saving prophet ryan anyway but that compared to this the post was a masterpiece the post focused on the nixon era and the machinations of the washington post unrealistically apparently because it was really the new york times that did all the heavy lifting and you feel like they've just made it about the um the washington post because they had one of the only female media magnets of the time and i thought um oh my god i can't remember the actress's name the one that gets nominated for an oscar whatever she does it will come to me but she was awful i thought it was the worst performance i've seen from her tom hanks was just by the numbers tom hanks it was very black and white very surface level nothing seemed to mean anything and the worst part about it was when it was telegraphing itself to this is about trump it was so painfully obvious that they were doing it it's almost like the a, a finger comes on the screen and is saying remember this bit's about trump i thought it was rubbish and of course it got nominated for oscars so that's my first group at number four into the top three another film that had a brilliant brilliant opener and a terrible sequel and i'm not the only one that thinks so kingsman was wonderful a brush of fre- fresh air when it first appeared and everything about it was great uh the cast was awesome edgy the the jokes were wrong um it was great it was an adult comic book story but a really um fresh and exciting and and it was, it was just a great all-round film. Kingsman 2, every single thing that made it enjoyable or fresh was gone. It was a rope by the numbers, shoehorning everything we can to get a franchise going, including an entirely pointless American cast. Um, everything was silly. I hate the fact when they kill off a major character that they just bring them back to life and they just keep doing it now. It's like, well, we want a franchise out of this, so I know you killed definitely killed that character off, let's just invent something to bring them back and it keeps happening over and over in fact avengers 4 is probably going to do that with half of the universe i would imagine uh, sometime shortly so i really hated it i mean i didn't just dislike it i hated it on every level it didn't work it had a stupid plot none of the characters were good and it was an obvious case of let's make another four of these movies make a few hundred million out of each of them and it was terrible not even worth once number two, Tomb Raider, slight hit and low-hanging fruit. Alicia Vikander is a relaunch, and everything about it was unambitious. Um, I thought they played her character nowhere near Angelina Jolie's take on it. Um, It played like a video game in the sense that there was just not really much story. Uh, Nothing much happened. The final half of the film was very, very boring, like a, a level on a computer game. Nothing really happened. Nothing meant anything. Alicia Vikander is very very nice to look at she's been decent in other things and I found her to be a little bit like a little kid in this film and after Angelina's powerhouse turn as, as Lara Croft um, whether she was representative of the comic book Lara Croft I don't know or the, sorry the um, video game Lara Croft this time around I just wasn't convinced by Alicia Vikander. She and, and physically she, she was very small and slight and I just didn't buy any of it But I'd stopped paying attention a long time before the film got anywhere near the end. And so we come to my number one worst film of the year, and it's one I didn't review in real time uh, because I only saw it a couple of weeks ago. And it's one of the, and like I said, I choose my films if something's massively bigged up and shoved in my face as being this incredible thing, and then I watch it and it's absolutely appalling. That's why my number one worst film of 2018 is Crazy Rich Asians. It is appalling. I was expecting something fresh and dynamic and new to the rom com genre, and they made out like it was because it was an Asian cast in an Asian city, this time Singapore. It was the whitest, blandest, most derivative, and generic rom com I think has been made in decades. It was basically a collision between Pretty in Pink and Pretty Woman. How many times have they used a scenario where? Girl meets boy. Girl doesn't realize boy's family is incredibly wealthy. Incredibly wealthy initially reject the girl for not being good enough, a Pretty in Pink, and also to a degree Pretty Woman. Um, every scene, every character was taken from other rom-coms and stapled on. You could have filmed the screenplay in America. It was from a book, but you could have filmed that screenplay in America with um, completely white cast and not changed any, virtually any element of it i mean make the family a rich white family in the southern states of america it's the same film it was tiresome it was trite all of the characters were surface level apart from michelle Yeoh, who was pretty good as a mum and whoever played the sister was good everyone else was trite every single thing i hate about rom-coms was in this film why does everyone have to be a billionaire why is the guy always one incredibly bland to the point you just can't stand him is i guess that's What women want from rom-coms this incredibly bland guy but why can't he just be a millionaire for once why does he have to be a billionaire every single time and the billionaire worship in it really sat awkward with me there was an awful lot of worship of wealth in this money and justification for who you are and having a main character whose uh, story trajectory is basically validation by rich people accepting you into the rich people's world i didn't warm to um, I really struggled to get through the film I found it torturous to watch um, like I said every, it's it's so rote that you knew what was coming every scene and you knew that you had this whole scenario to get through the bit where they break up and aren't together anymore you knew that she was going to have a quirky best friend that you know like Ducky out of pretty and print she's got a quirky best friend that dresses weirdly and, and says quirky things that she shouldn't say nothing at all was original in this film. Nothing. It was terrible. I'd give Crazy Rich Asians one and a half out of ten. It was my worst film of the year. Don't believe the hype. Seriously, it's got an Asian cast, and I think that is the only reason that people didn't turn around and say this is dire. It's worse than the likes of Runaway Bride or something like that, but even that was more original than this. Every rom com you've ever seen, the worst ones, the bad ones, take the worst bits out of it, and you've got this film. Surface level noise from start to finish, predictability level off the charts, even the main characters I didn't warn to. It was only a couple of these sort of sub characters that I actually enjoyed spending time with. And I just find the whole worship of wealth thing that this did it was basically a a tourism video for Singapore, but Singapore's got a lot more going for it than just worshipping billionaires and it didn't seem like anybody in this film had any worth unless they were part of this whole world all of the sub characters that weren't billionaires were amazingly impressed that she was going out of a billionaire and that was like the whole validation of everyone was how rich they were so absolute crap crazy rich asians my worst film of 2018 i tried to turn crazy rich asians off multiple times but i was going to review it on uh, a show i missed so I forced myself to get as close to the end as possible. and you know that scene that you know you're gonna get where the girl's going home? She's either in a cab going across a bridge and um the boyfriend's chasing after her on a motorbike or this one, which is she's getting on a plane and the boyfriend gets on the plane and declares his undying love in front of the whole crowd on the plane. and I just I just hit off. So I didn't see the last ten minutes at all. I was like, no, you're not not doing this to me. So anyway, back to my best films of the year and a really good top five as well at number five it's an Australian film I've said many times that Australia does really well at making very very gritty films maybe ever since Waking Fright but particularly since the boys in the 90s there have been so many like Samson and Delilah, uh, Snowtown, um, Animal Kingdom every couple of years they seem to throw up these really horrible films that are really really good and what they've done in the uh, last sort of decade lots of really good sci-fi films predestination was a near it was a masterpiece starring ethan hawke absolutely fantastic film didn't get anywhere near the attention this year we got upgrade a totally wonderful film uh, directed by lee wonnell and starring logan marshall green and it 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 existed in two worlds uh, if you could say that there were two broad sci-fi tropes one being the action sci-fi film and one being the cerebral sci-fi film this amazingly hit both equally it worked really well as a sort of body horror cyberpunk action film and really well as a cerebral film it's uh, about uh, a guy that his wife gets murdered in front of him and he's left a paraplegic and his life's ruined obviously and then this wealthy billionaire computer guy comes along and says look we've developed a chip and we can put it at the base of your neck and it will do all the motor functions that your brain used to do it can reconnect you to your body to your limbs which is an interesting premise but the thing that i love most about this film every idea it threw up it followed it through to the end much much further than i expected it so once he's got this computer control body obviously it's a lot faster and, and he's a lot more able he also has um the ability to think a lot better and his his detail uh recollection of what happened is brilliant he's a his ability to sort of weigh up threats and stuff in a room is superb. So he kind of becomes this superhero, but it doesn't end there at all. And I don't want to spoil too much of the plot, but one of the things that happens when they turn the computer on is the computer itself seems to have its own sentience and sort of grows inside him as well. And there sort of becomes this notion of what, you know, what constitutes humanity, where would a human being stop being a human being how much of it would how much of you would have to be controlled by a machine for you to lose your humanity and it kept pushing these ideas all the way through even as the action mounted i thought it was a great film low budget but it looked fantastic you wouldn't have asked for any more millions to to have been spent on it great screenplay no fat on it Uh, some really good production design I thought the film that it was very close to I'm going to forget now the Alex Garland film which I didn't like um, with Alicia Vikander and I think where she played um, uh, sort of like a humanoid in this uh, in this complex and I didn't like that film at all but um, this one I thought it pushed the ideas to the the absolute limits and I thought it was pretty profound and pretty interesting. And the action, gory and, and violent and fast. And everyone in it was good. And I just thought it was an all-round film. It was a really well-rounded film with a lot going for it. So it's my fifth favourite film of the year. Uh, from to my number four film of the year. And I don't think I reviewed it in real time. It's a Netflix film. But it's by the Immortal Coen Brothers. called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Um when i started what it's a collection of short stories and when i started watching it it's got two short stories at the start an Bullion turn by tim blake nelson in the opener and james franco in an even shorter one and i thought at this stage we were getting the raising arizona oh brother we're out there kind of um zany coen brothers film comedic um over the top and and i don't like those coen brothers films so the rest of the film were these three incredibly depressing longer sequences which I thought were amazing and I was shocked by how dark like the first one up is Liam Neeson with um he's like a fairground attraction guy in the in the wild west the whole film's set in the wild west and he's taking around this guy who's an attraction who he's an orator but he doesn't have any arms or legs so Liam Neeson basically has to carry him around feed him toilet him and it's just this incredibly depressing, claustrophobic tale about how the guy starts, sort of gradually people become less interested in what this sort of freak show, but a very talented orator has to offer and it turns very, very dark. Um, it's a great film. All of the three main parts are fantastic. Zoe Karzan as someone that's on a wagon train going through um, Indian Territory is probably uh, that's probably maybe the standout sequence um she's great and so are the uh, the other people in it <laughs> another really depressing tale but these are the mini movies they could have been fleshed out and been a, a hour long at least um and the final one was uh tom waits virtually by himself throughout the entire sequence as a as someone mining for gold in this pristine part of the of the landscape uh, and they're all three of them are very depressing quite intense but brilliant sequences and then it sort of ends on this weird cerebral uh, wagon train ride um stagecoach drive sorry uh with these characters like the hateful eight getting to know each other on a stagecoach which is a shorter sequence but quite odd i really liked it it's probably my favorite cohen brothers film since no country for old men and i'd probably give it eight and a half very strong eight and a half maybe even a nine i really thought that um it went above and beyond the call of duty and it, it threw up <coughs> quite painful sort of emotions and it was quite deep even though it didn't seem to be it was quite deep in the way that characters interacted and the stuff that happened along the way so truly great film from the coen brothers i thought the ballad of buster Scruggs my fourth favorite of the year julia my top three films all scored nine out of ten or would have scored, 9 out of 10. And the first of those at number 3 is the first film I went wild over this year. And uh, in January, I usually end up reviewing all the Oscar contenders. And one that really... And I, I, I said about how my, I had reservations with three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri and a couple of the others. But the one that really stood out is Filmmaking Perfection, and I fell in love with it, was Call Me By Your Name. Absolute masterpiece, uh, directed by Luca Guadagnino, or Guadagnio, Nino. I can't say that word. Um, a number of his films have already got acclaim. I am Love, bigger splash, and this is supposedly the the third in a trilogy about desire. And it's uh, it's, it, it's an unusual setup in that it's a, a guy, a young kid who goes to Italy. Uh, where his dad is um, completing a book or something on archaeology, and he, his dad gets Arnie Hammerins as a, a brash young student who's a lot older than than probably the role warranted, and this young kid experiences this incredible desire and lust, and they both fall in this mad passionate summer love. The fact that it's between two men is totally irrelevant. I felt to the story. Um I thought that it was just European filmmaking at its peak. It wasn't a film that I would have expected to have been made in America. They would have had trouble with the fact that this was a guy under the age of seventeen with a twenty four year old man who looks a lot older than that um but in this context, everything was so wonderful and so adult like the family all everyone knows what's going on. The mum and dad know but. They're so supportive of what's going on. They understand that everyone goes through this intense infatuation one time in their lives, which is why I'm disappointed that they're going to make a sequel. There was a sequel to the book involving the same two main characters, and I just think it's about that one unrepeatable moment in your life. So don't do a sequel, but they're doing it anyway, where they look where the characters meet up again, and I think that's a shame because it was a perfect hermatically sealed environment These three months in this idyllic italian landscape where these two characters just become bonded like you only get once maybe in your life and the parents are so good as well michael stolberg as the dad got a lot of acclaim for a, a scene where he talks to his son about how he wishes that he had had basically a love so intense at any time in his life and he understands and there's no there's never a mention of them being both men ever in his film it doesn't even come up but I thought the mother was even better than him Amiris Kazar, and they're both they're so European in their. I think they're supposed to be French but they're so European in their outlook um with regards to how they treat what's going on if it was an American film the parents would have gone oh my god what's going on oh my god you can't get together with this old man oh my god we're gonna sack the guy and the opposite happened here it was it was one of those Like There's so many great French films where people are just sitting around talking and eating baguettes, (laughs) Um, but having these really wonderfully intense and articulate and intelligent conversations about life, love and the universe. And that was all the way through this film. It looked beautiful. Uh, There were fantastic performances at the centre of the film uh arnie hammer's obviously the the best he's been timothy chalamet he's uh, he got oscar nominated for best actor as well i thought it should have won best picture as well didn't but my third favorite film of the year and from one of my f- you're with julian counting down up to the number two now and up to this weekend this was my number one film of the year so it's very very close to being that anyway and netflix strikes again uh, back in February a sci-fi film came out and now Alex Garland was the author of The Beach one of the pivotal novels of the 90s and that sort of got him in with Danny Boyle who trashed his novel for a terrible movie with Leonardo DiCaprio but since then his involvement with cinema has gone from strength to strength he wrote 28 Days and 28 Days Later and his first film Ex Machina was the one that I was trying to remember before having elements of um upgrade but um i didn't like it i didn't think it went anywhere he has come on leaps and bounds his film annihilation came out in february and for most of the year has been my number one favorite film of the year it was released in the cinema and uh it was made by netflix which is where it now resides it's a story that stars natalie portman as a, as a military scientist, and her hus- basically there is a part of America where this sort of like dome has been emerging very, very slowly, taking up more and more land. And no one knows what it is. It's expected that it's a extraterrestrial in origin. It's now covering a vast area of very remote land. Every time the military send people in, which they can do easily, no one comes back alive. No one's reported on what's happening inside this dome. And the only person to have come out is Natalie Portman's husband, played by Oscar Isaacs. He comes home, he's very odd, he doesn't remember where he's been for the last year, and eventually he starts getting really sick. And that's when the military pounce and they're all whisked away to this facility on the edge of this expanding dome. From that point on, Natalie Portman gets together with three other women very feminist sort of film on a lot of levels this so uh, gina rodriguez tessa thompson is becoming really big now and jennifer jason lee they all head off to try and find out what this thing is what it means is it ever going to stop is it going to swallow the whole world once they get inside the dome which is like um just like a normal landscape of just sort of like jungly sort of foresty landscape very very strange things start happening Things seem to be different in ways that are difficult to express. Sometimes they'll see animals that seem to be emerging of more than one animal. Like an ant- uh, antlers will be on an animal that has no right to be having antlers. and as the more they progress towards the ground zero of where this event is emanating from, the stranger things get. Um, it's a supremely cerebral film. Um, it operates on multiple levels it's got a very interesting screenplay you never quite it, it takes a rug from under you frequently you're never quite sure what's around the corner some of the sequences are beguilingly odd um, and some of the scenarios and scenes they walk into are really artistically beautiful and and very very challengingly weird the atmosphere throughout's weird The character machinations of the four women are excellent. They've all got their own motivations for going on what is a suicide mission because only one person's come out and this person is virtually dead, if not dead anyway. So they don't really have any hope of of surviving and they've all got their own reasons for that and they're all explored beautifully. Um, He helms a very difficult film beautifully. Um, It's very, very good all the way to the last third but the last third cranks it up and it becomes this it reminded me a little bit of the Scarlett johansson film under the skin is that odd and and that's unusual for a film of this sort of stature it wasn't a small budget film and natalie portman's obviously a big star uh she's brilliant i used to think she was a clumsy actress but she's got better and better in recent years and she's excellent here so are the supporting cast uh the visuals are splendid really really good and the last third is just like this apocalyptic wasteland of weirdness. Um, and it doesn't offer easy answers it's one of these films that you leave with a hundred more questions than you started I thought it was flat out brilliant I really hope it gets some kind of recognition in the awards season so that's Annihilation my second favorite film of the year up until I saw another film this weekend which I'll talk about after this from the house show the plan at 15 my 15 top films of the year, Blockers, the comedy, 14 The Star is Born, 13 Game Night, Black Clansman 12, Mission Impossible, Fallout, 11, Avengers Infinity War, 10, You Were Never Really Here, 9, 8, Three Billboardings Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and A Quiet Place at 7, Coco at 6, Upgrade, a sci-fi film at 5, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, a Netflix special at 4, and then three masterpieces, Call Me By Your Name at 3, Annihilation at 2, and my favourite film of 2018 I only saw this weekend is by Paul Schrader. He was an amazing force in cinema in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, wrote Taxi Driver, wrote Raging Bull and directed quite a few films that were very, very big uh, at that time. But he's he sort of, he went off the boil and came back out of the blue with the stunning First Reformed which came out in August Starring Ethan Hawke as a priest who spirals into despair. He's lost his wife, he's lost his son in Iraq, and he's ended up as a preacher in a small town bankrolled by TV evangelists. But he himself is losing all hope. And it's a film about despair. It's a film about losing hope. And one of his parishioners is a manic depressive environmentalist and they have a meeting where he expresses his absolute despair that they're all gonna die. And at the same time, Ethan Hawke's health is deteriorating massively, terminally, you would expect. And Ethan Hawke, once this guy kills himself, kinda dovetails his own failing health with the failing health of the planet and just sinks into this absolute despair pit. I thought this was an amazing original film it's probably the most depressing film I've seen all year. It's very difficult. It offers no easy answers. its I think if Ethan Hawke doesn't get an Oscar for this film for Best Actor, he's the new Leonardo DiCaprio. I think it'll be his fifth nomination without a win, and he's deserved it on a couple of occasions. Here, he gives a searing performance. There's no light in this film. I don't think he smiles. I don't think anything happens. Amanda Seyfried is excellent as the wife of the guy that kills himself. It's a truly intelligent, thought-provoking film. It relates to... It hammers the environmental message because the guy is so obsessive about his own thoughts and his own health. It's natural to believe that he would be obsessive about the environment as well. And the theme throughout is, Will God forgive us? It isn't a religious film, really, at all. But it's the notion that we are completely destroying the world and there's no hope for any of us. And he relates that to his own questions of mortality. Faith is a big element of the film on some levels, but it doesn't have to be. It's a take-it-or-leave-it proposition there. He just happens to be a priest. But he's someone that's looking at the world, and that's very relevant, as relevant as Black Klansman is. He looks at a world in utter despair, thinking that, things are so bad they they we're, all, we're we're all doomed there's no possibility for us being saved on any level of what you call being saved is i found it magnetic i found it deeply enthralling and the last third again it goes off on these amazing artistic tangents that you just don't see coming uh, the way the characters um, evolve in their relationships you don't see coming and it moves towards an unexpectedly um, suspenseful and shocking denouement as well um, you think it's going to be this um, sort of uh, very low-key drama throughout but it ups the uh, tension towards the back half of the film much more than I, I didn't expect it to be exciting in the last third and it was very exciting Paul Schrader has pulled one out of the bag here he may not have made a film this good for 25 years um, I think it deserves a hell of i think it deserves some um, nominations in virtually every category this awards season the screenplay is brilliant the script is fantastic the direction is incredibly tight and ethan hawke gives the performance of his life in a very difficult role i thought first reformed may not be the uh, most enjoyable experience you will have in the cinema it is relentlessly remorselessly depressing and bleak but it's a profound film and i just found myself bowled over by it like i said up until this weekend, Annihilation was my film of the year, but I just thought this worked, again, on multiple levels that were beyond a script. It just worked in m- multiple ways. I'm sure a lot of us look at the world now and find it, frankly, terrifying, and, and Ethan Hawke does, and he, he grapples with this in biblical ways as well. He's almost like he is himself a biblical character being tortured. Um, I thought it was an amazing film. I hope that it came out to little fanfare other than Ethan Hawke and Paul Schrader being noted for their great work. I hope that one, now that award season's coming around, it's going to keep cropping up and more and more people will end up seeing it. Um, like I said, it's really challenging, but the rewards are there. It's a terrific film. There are sequences that are unforgettable in it as well. There are interactions between Ethan Hawke and other characters that are unforgettable, particularly with a man Seyfried, Is that's how you say her name, um, but also other people in his congregation which are at times painful, but generally really real, and and you believe what's happening. So I think First Reformed is the finest film of 2018 and my number one, and I'm going to play out, and next week I'll be back with hopefully my top 25 tracks of the year. Um, So that was it, First Reformed, my number one film of the year.